Have you ever wondered what it must feel like to jump into the near-freezing Antarctic waters through an ice hole and spend the next 30 minutes to an hour surrounded by sea spiders, giant sponges and seals? We'll tune in for an epic chat with marine ecologists Dr. Drew Laura and Dr. Lee Tate from the National Institute of Water and Atmospheric Research, otherwise known as NEWA. Drew is a principal scientist at NEWA who has made a massive contribution to the advancement of marine ecology. His main area of research focuses on the organisms that live on the sea floor and their contribution to ecosystem function in estuaries and along coastlines. Lee travelled down to the ice in 2019 with Drew for his first Antarctic expedition, where he operated a boxfish ROV, taking our knowledge of the under ice environment to new depths, literally. Lee is also a marine ecologist at NEWA and he specialises in ecophysiology and ecological structure in the marine environment. So sit back and tune in as we discuss all things benthic ecology, kinds of communities that exist under the ice in Antarctica, how sea ice influences them and how resilient they are to climate related changes. We also touch on Science Under the Ice an epic outreach project which takes you on real and virtual research expeditions to Antarctica, where scientists like Drew and Lee explore how climate change will affect the marine biodiversity in Antarctica. Righty, here we go. Well, firstly, thank you so much, Drew and Lee, for taking the time today to talk to us. Um, I guess I'll just get straight into it. What is benthic ecology and what does the word benthic mean? So ecology is essentially the study of animals, plants, and organisms within their wider environment, sort of whole ecosystems and how those ecosystems, um, or the animals within them, the plants within them interact with each other and how they interact with their surrounding environment. Um, the term benthic is essentially means the seafloor. So um, a large part of the, our expertise is in benthic ecology, which is, the plants and animals and, and microorganisms that inhabit the seafloor. Wonderful. So what is science under the ice and what kind of questions are you trying to answer with this program? Basically, um, science under the ice is actually um, just a term that we use to describe the work that we do um, doing science down in Antarctica. <clears throat> I guess we, we it, um, science under the ice is actually it. A Facebook page. You can um, type that into your browser and it'll come up with the Science Under the Ice page. And I guess the motivation for developing the Science Under the Ice thing was that um, we were a little bit tired, I have to say, of, of um, some of the communications around science and, and um, people trying to talk a lot about the diving and the, the risks and the danger of working down there or sort of trying to sensationalize it, but we wanted to actually talk about the science itself and why we want to work there and how we execute science in, in what is actually a logistically difficult area to work. Um, so we, we started doing the communications on our own. We would take photographs and we would write little vignettes and blurbs and post video and things like that. The, the science under the ice page was established um, after a long field expedition in Antarctica in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and we added to it a little bit more on our recent expedition in 2019. 
Um, but our groups um, have been working down in Antarctica um, since the early 2000s. And uh, my first trip down there was 2007. Um, so the, the process of doing science under the ice is kind of a long one, but yeah. um, we've just, the, the actual thing about science under the ice is a, is, a, is a communication tool to just really talk about the importance of the science, why we do what we do, and how we do science um, under the ice. And, and it is a kind of an interesting or um, novel way of doing work because you do have to drill holes in sea ice and work um, underneath sea ice. Yeah. We do it by scuba diving. And so there are, you know, obviously a lot of questions around the diving and the logistics and, and that's fine. But um, we use the diving and we use the things like that as a tool to do the science that we want to do to answer what we think are really important questions. So that's kind of the, the um, how science under the ice, I guess, came about. Wonderful. Yeah, I myself have been following it for quite a while. And I think it's been really interesting, even just looking at the videos and the photos and learning about what you guys are doing every so often. So is this going to be something that you guys contribute to in the in the future, like an ongoing science communication page? Yeah, I think it's, um, I guess, um, I, I'm not very uh, internet and technology savvy. Um, <laughs> So it, we're probably not quite as wide reaching as we could be, although some of the, um, the reach of the page has been pretty amazing. Yeah. I think if we get a bit cleverer about um, linking it into other networks, um, we'll, we'll get broader reach. But um, yeah, like we did this year, it, we sort of had a bit of a hiatus in 2018. There wasn't much added to the page in the intervening period between our 2017 expedition in 2019, but in 2019, we had a lot of new footage um, and we were working in new areas. And so we, we updated the page and got a lot of um, interest back from that. So I think it's a really useful thing to communicate in this way. We may not um, always use just that platform. And also um, as part of um, NIWA's um, outreach, science outreach, they make links to the page or our colleagues um, at, in, at the University of Helsinki in Finland, they have been linking to the page and colleagues at University of Auckland have been linking to it. So um, through those different um, comms departments at the different inst institutions, we do get broader reach. And our work has actually been picked up pretty broadly. We've had um, interviews on Discovery Channel in can Canada and um, CNN um, did a piece with us. And um, so that, that, you know, by having something like that out there, uh, we do actually attract in, um, attention, which really gets the message out a bit more broadly. So it's been useful in that regard. That's wonderful. Yeah, that's really important. So these two expeditions in particular, the 2017 and the 2019 expedition, would you be able to go into a little bit more detail of what you guys did down there? So in 2017, uh, we were working as part of a New Zealand uh, Antarctic Research Institute um, project and we are trying to understand um, the resilience of uh, Antarctic biota and ecosystems to climate related changes and the site that we went to we purposely went there because it was known to be a very food limited site it's essentially one of the southernmost accessible marine habitats on the whole planet so basically at the very southern end of McMurdo Sound, 
That's as far south as you can get and still find habitats that are available to study. And that particular habitat is a very food poor site. And we've studied that in comparison to other sites around McMurdo Sound that have greater amounts of food. And one of the reasons we did that is because um, changes in sea ice and changes in climate are predicted to increase the productivity of, of southern waters. And so by studying these sites across gradients of food, we can predict how these very food poor sites like New Harbor will change over time. So it's sort of like using spatial gradients to understand how things will change through time. Mm -hmm. And so we went to New Harbor to do um, a number of different experiments. We, we collected animals firstly to look at their isotopic ratios and see what eats what and the food web. And we were gonna compare that to 2001. Right. The first time that we had collected samples in that way. Uh, we also did experiments where we measured the benthic metabolism and how the benthic ecosystem processes this food material. Um, and then we also did some uh, monitoring for uh, just sort of our long-term data sets and, and in comparison to these other sites. So we did, we were there for something like 20 days camping out on the sea ice and diving every day. I think Incredible. combined we did something like 100 dives. Um, and it was, it was an amazing trip. And yeah. the really cool thing about New Harbor, sorry, I'm probably going on a little No, bit this is here. fascinating stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but the amazing thing about New Harbor was that um, we had visited there in 2001 and then in 2009, and there had been no sea ice breakout for more than a decade when we visited there in 2009. And then when we went back in 2017, there had been a number of changes in the local sea ice conditions, including a full breakout of sea ice um, in 2016 and a, a pretty significant breakout in 2017. So there had been an injection of food. So we studied in 2009 when the site was basically starving to death and then again in 2017. So we're now, in addition to the spatial gradients of food supply, we've been able to see how things can actually change over time. And there was a surprising amount of change in that little period of time in response to this injection of food. So wow. yeah, we're, we're really uh, enjoying um, studying these different sites and uh, how the different elements of biodiversity respond to sea ice and other climate related changes. So by food limited, are we talking phytoplankton? Uh, so food is basically delivered in two ways. So yeah, the, the proximity of sites um, to open water, like either Polinias or um, to the northern areas where there's no sea ice. Those are the more productive waters in terms of phytoplankton, because without sea ice blocking the sunlight, sunlight penetrates in and you get these phytoplankton blooms. So the oceanographic connectivity of those open water sites, um, the open water areas to our study sites, that affects the food supply. Um, but also local sea ice conditions also have a profound effect on sea um, food supply because underneath, underneath sea ice, you get under ice algae. And that is, a, is known to be, once that drops off to the seafloor, that's known to be an important food source for the, the benthic animals as well. Fascinating. So what mm. kinds of communities actually exist under the ice in Antarctica and what organism is your most memorable and Lee's most memorable from your time in Antarctica? You go first, Lee. Yeah, sure. Um, so unlike Drew, I've only had one expedition down to the ice uh, and all of, all of the work that I did 
was surrounding Scott Base and I can only assume would be a, a really high, a rich food environment. Um, Ross Island is sort of out, out in the sound a bit further and has very um, fast dropping off coastline um, into very deep water. And so this exposes it to quite a bit of water movement and current and by the looks of the animals that live there, quite a high supply of food going past them. And so almost all of the animals um, that live there are filter feeding. So they're capturing things as they go past. Um, and so some of these organisms are ginormous sponges, um, volcano sponges, you know, barrel sponges. Um, and these things, from evidence, there's a photo of um, Paul Dayton, a famous US ecologist, actually sitting in one of these back in the back in the 60s, I think it was. So, they, wow, they so they're really, massive. They're huge, yeah. Um, so th these were probably the, the most striking thing to me because they're, they're just, they just stick out. They're so big. Um, but not only is the biomass of them really high, but everything down there is just chocker with organisms, um, thickets of bryozoans, um, anemones, all sorts of sponges. So it's really dense and rich and the biomass is extraordinarily high so right fascinating um, that that whole the whole community blew me away more than any one thing in particular but the sponges definitely were um pretty pretty significant yeah. bits of biology and are we talking lots of different colors or like what when you first look down there obviously you're shocked at how much is going on but is it also bright and colorful how you would envisage a coral reef for example yeah i mean we're di a lot of the sites that we did dive were under quite thick sea ice so we're under often about two to three meters of ice which really means the actual natural light getting through there is really really low um and at one of the locations the the light getting in was mainly from the holes that we put in so it was really really dark but Obviously, you know, we don't dive in the dark. We light things up with torches and lights and stuff, and it really is colourful. Um, there's, it, I, I probably wouldn't call it coral reef colourful, but it's it's certainly not far off. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And how about you, Drew? What was your most memorable organism or, I guess, maybe dive site, for example? Yeah, <clears throat> I've been to a few places, but... Actually, surprisingly, the, the areas right around Scott Base were among the richest I've been to in terms of the sponge life and the bryozoans. And, and also last year, we had a, a camera system, a remotely operated vehicle camera system that Lee operated that um, allowed us to um, see what occurs even down uh, very deep, down to 100 meters or so. And the communities get even richer the, the deeper you go uh, in this coastal zone. So. Um, I'll get Lee to actually talk about the, the 2019 expedition in a, mi in a minute. I, I guess another thing to remember about the Antarctic, at least the area that we go, so Antarctic is a, a, an enormous continent and it's not this way everywhere, but in the southern part of McMurdo Sound, especially because it's more than 77 degrees south latitude, um, it's very seasonal and there's um, sea ice and that does block out a light. And because of that, you're not gonna get much algal growth. So the communities that we see on the seafloor in these sites are almost 100% animal dominated. There's no algae. Um, 
some of the sites uh, a little bit north of Scott Base can have um, one red alga species, a little short tuft, tufting red alga called Philophora, but that's pretty much it. You get a little bit of coral and algae, um, but everything else there is, is animal. So I think that's one important thing to notice about the communities, at least where we go in, in McMurdo Sound. Um, and then there's some cool things too, like you get some gigantic animals. So the sponges um, are big because they, well, we're not really sure why they grow so big, but maybe because they're undisturbed and they're able to grow for to that size. But there is also gigantism. We get these nemertine worms that are up to a meter in length, which is unusual. You get polychaete worms called flabigillares, which can be um, maybe uh, 10 to 12 to 15 centimeters long and you know as thick as a cigar. So different than your normal polychaete worm that you would That's see here. Huge. In um, you get these pycnogonids that are the size of a dinner plate. Um, and so, yeah, you get some, uh, they, they, there's a little um, uh, isopod uh, called glyptonotus, which is also like, sort of like a little, looks like a little battle tank. It's a, it's, it's pretty cool. So you get some really strange, uh, extraordinarily large animals. And then there's also the absence of certain things, like you don't see lobsters or crabs. There's no um, crushing predators like that. And also there's no sharks or rays, things like that in Antarctica. So there, there's unusual um, groups that are present and then there's notable absences of certain groups as well. Right, so it's a very different system, I guess, to what you would be used to studying, say if you studied in temperate or subtropical or tropical zones. That's fascinating. I feel like I've definitely seen the photo of the freakishly large isopod <laughs> circulating around social media. Pretty cool. That's pretty awesome. Lee, if you just want to elaborate maybe on the 2019 expedition, that would be really interesting. Yeah, sure. So the reason that we were down on the ice in 2019 was to start work on a long-term ecological monitoring campaign related to um, the Scott Base rebuild. So Scott Base is um, getting a, a redesign and they're, they're going to essentially rebuild the whole base into what looks like an incredible um, new base. And part of part of the concerns around doing this is the potential damage that any construction operations might have on the, the nearby marine communities. So we established some, um, some permanent transects um, around Scott Base and a control site a bit closer to McMurdo. And we established these um, using divers. We'd put down... Um, ropes that will stay there um, throughout the course of the program and collected samples for heavy metal contamination uh, and sediment samples as well. The other thing that we that was a little bit experimental was um, we also deployed a, an ROV, a remote operated vehicle to kind of help us expand the area that we're capturing um, within the imagery. So with that transect line that the divers put down as a reference, I used the ROV to um, map the, a wider area, much like, a, much like aerial drones are doing these days, where mm -hmm. they're following grid-like patterns and sort of buzzing back and forth and getting really high overlap imagery. So each image, each consecutive image captures a little bit of the last one so that you can stitch all these images back together and create a large image that, that encompasses a wider area. 
the other cool thing that you can do that with this is you can you can work out how tall things are and and recreate the three-dimensional structure because with each photo overlapping you can see how far the point of something sticking up has moved compared to the base of it and so you can get a really accurate measurement of how tall a sponge is for example and so we use that rov to really expand that area that we were cap where we were capturing um but it all it was also great for like drew said is going down deeper than what we can usually go as divers where we're essentially limited to about 30 meters depth when we're scuba diving and even less than that when we're talking about the practical work that we have to do down there so being able to go deeper for longer and see a bit more with rov was was really was really pretty cool and it, it enabled us to see depth transects as well where we start to as we get below that um level of anchor ice the the ice that binds to the seafloor and grows over organisms um we're able to get way past that and way past any sort of sea ice scouring effects that would happen closer to the surface and and really see what the undisturbed communities in the deeper waters look like which um as drew mentioned are just insanely rich and, and thick with biodiversity and, and biomass. Right. Did you see quite a drastic difference at any point in particular, uh, depth-wise, when you were using the ROV in the community? Yeah. Um, I think it was, it was probably about 40 or 50 metres depth, maybe, with it just went berserk with life, really. Um, wow. So up in, up in the shallows, you know, in about 20 metres, we see a few of the big barrel sponges. But as you go deeper, you just start, they start to crop up more, they start to get bigger, and they start to occur in these clusters where you've got seven or eight giant, you know, big barrel sponges all, all right next to each other. So that was, that was pretty noticeable as you went down with depth. Um, yeah, there is, um, there's pretty well-defined um, depth zones, as, as Lee said. Um, Paul Dayton sort of defined these zones as sort of shallower than 15 is sort of a disturbed area. There's often anchor ice or ice scour or things that um, kind of impact the ability of these sessile seafloor animals to kind of make a living. Um, between 15 and 30 or 35 is sort of um, a, a transitional zone where there's less disturbance, but the diversity isn't really rich yet. And then, yeah, beyond that, um, 30 to 60 meters is, you know, amazingly diverse. Beyond that is beyond diving depths. But now with these new cameras, um, we're, we're able to even go beyond, beyond that. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So what is it like to actually drive one of these ROVs onto the ice? I see it behind you right now. It looks pretty cool. And it's actually bigger than I thought it would be. So is it quite complex or? I think the more complex than driving it is all of the setup and the arrangement of it and troubleshooting it and those sorts of things. Once you actually got it going and you're behind the sticks, it's, it's, not actually, it's not actually that difficult to drive. It does take a bit of getting used to when you're trying to do this really accurate high overlap imagery because you're trying to capture things really, really close to them. Um, so you're driving it quite close to the seafloor and you've also, you've got to be aware about where it's being pushed by the currents and that. So that, that does become a bit of a challenge but it's um, driving it's actually not too bad. The, all of the stuff around getting it in the water is, is really probably where most of the expertise seems to come in. Yeah. Right. 
So had you had a bit of practice here in New Zealand before you went down to ice, I assume? Yeah, I had. Yeah. So um, I'd probably been driving the unit for about a year before this, before this expedition and had plenty of failures to, to, <laughs> to work from. So, yeah. So you had it down packed. <laughs> well, Wonderful. it was, it was mostly very smooth um, down there. So it was, um, usually I'm operating it from a boat. So you, you, I'm often contending with what's going on at the surface. Whereas in Antarctica, you're in an, a nice warm Monaghan sort of driving it with a, you know, a, a window view out to the, out to the icy continent. So that sounds very pleasant. (laughs) Quite a, quite a different way to do things. Yeah. Yeah. And just rounding back to uh, Drew. So you had a bit of a different experience. You actually got in the water yourself. What was it like to dive in Antarctica? And I guess what's one story from a favorite dive that you'd like to share for someone who's never even been to Antarctica or never dived before in their life? So um, in the last uh, year, um, we had a team of five and we were all divers and, and Lee is a diver himself, so he can share his experience as well. Um, last year was his first time diving underneath the ice. I, I remember probably my, one of my most memorable dives was my very first dive because first of all, it, there's, you're kind of a little bit unsure. Um, you're a little bit timid, kind of, you know, not yeah. knowing what to expect. And no matter how many, times you sort of tell yourself it's going to be cold you don't realize yeah it's really overwhelmingly cold <laughs> when you first go down until you kind of get yourself used to it and get your clothing layering right and things like that um yeah my first dive was yeah pretty shockingly cold but also the thing i remember the most is once i got in and got through the hole and got myself sorted and the dive supervisor had gone through ahead of me and he gave me a, an okay I gave him an okay back and then he descended below me. Um, so he was descending down to the seafloor ahead of me. I was uh, above him. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like freaking out going, holy smokes, it's like skydiving. It really <laughs> felt like I was like a slow motion skydive because the water is so clear that you really do feel like you're, you're floating in, in air rather than water. And I just remember that was my overwhelming impression. Like, I can't believe I'm in water. Like I, it just, it was so unreal. Like watching this guy descend below me, he looked like he was flying through the sky, you know, this, yeah. was, it was so really cool. That sounds so surreal. And because it was so cold, did you find yourself breathing a lot faster? And how long can you actually stay underwater? Is it similar to diving in less cold environments or? Uh, we, we dive, um, well, there's protocols, Obviously, your dive times depend on depth and a, and a number of things, but um, basically, you're kind of really freezing cold after 45 minutes or so. So our dive times are always less than that. Right. Uh, we, do, we do bring lots of air on our back, so we dive with twin sets. So we've got twin tanks on our back, plenty of gas. But nevertheless, you want to keep your breathing rate down quite low because in the Antarctic, you do can experience problems with your regulators sort of freezing up and it happens more commonly if you're breathing hard into your regulators. So we try to be real relaxed and um, kind of hover and have good buoyancy and just float around gently um, and kind of take things slow and, um, and just enjoy and observe. 
So we hover off the seabed, so we never have to touch the seabed really, unless we're sampling it. Um, but yeah, so you just try to keep yourself real chill and, and not breathe hard and hopefully your regulator doesn't free flow. <laughs> Stay calm as possible. <laughs> Oh, so that's cool. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you'd um, dived in Antarctica too, Lee. What was your most memorable experience? Yeah, I, I guess, like Drew, it's kind of hard to go past that first dive just, in, you know, at being that first experience of, of being there. Um, but I, the, the first dive was, you know, a little bit overwhelming, really, because there was actually quite a decent current going. And so when you're trying to do what Drew says and keep your, your breath down, the last thing you want is to be having to push really hard and, 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 and fin a lot and, and use energy. So um, that was quite, that was quite a memorable dive in that it was just a matter of, there was no work to do. There was just a, an introduction to the environment and just getting used to it and observing it while trying to do all the things you kind of been trained to do was, was pretty cool. But um with a few dives in, probably the most memorable experience I had was that I started to hear a, a Weddell seal making the amazing noises that they make. And it kept on getting louder and louder. And I was, I kind of thought, well, it must be getting close to me because it, I can feel the sound waves kind of booming through me. And the next thing I, I turned around and, you know, no more than a few metres behind me, there was a Weddell seal up above me looking down at me, wondering wow. what I was up to. So that was that was quite an experience. But not one that I had the had the chance to sort of think about or get involved with at the time because we were we had work to do. So yeah. it was a pretty interesting experience to turn around and sort of say, "All right, I've got to get back to it." <laughs> That's so cool! Oh wow! So I guess final question is how how did you both get to where you are today? This sounds incredible. You've dived in Antarctica. You've operated a vehicle under the water in Antarctica and. You've seen all these amazing things that no one really ever gets to see in a lifetime, unless if they go and check out your Facebook page. <laughs> I, I think for me, um, and I think this is for most scientists, um, you're given opportunities by people who have been there before and, have, um, and want to continue the work. And so they, they bring you on. Um, and give you a chance and then your job is to stand on the shoulders of what they've established before you. So I've been really fortunate to come after some colleagues who have really paved the way. So um, Elf Narco and Simon Thrush were my immediate colleagues here at NIWA um, who, who they kind of worked with Vonda Cummings and then I got involved with them and then I was able to eventually start leading expeditions myself and Simon and Alf, um, they were building on the work of Paul Dayton and uh, other people like that. So it's kind of like uh, this progression where um, it is difficult to get the introduction to be able to do what we do. Um, but when, when you do, you want to make the most of it when you're down there and um, really be passionate about the science and make sure that you're doing the best work that you can. Because it is a difficult place to get to. It's expensive to get to. Um, and it's, it's, it is a little bit of a sacrifice. Sometimes you're down there for six weeks and, you know, whatever. So, yeah, but, but that's how I got started. And, um, yeah, I guess maybe Lee's about the same. Lee's, Lee's getting introduced to it now. and mm -hmm. He's going to be a big part of the Antarctic science platform and things um, going forward. Yeah, I mean, I th one, of the th one of the comments that I saw on the, 
under the science under the ice page when i put out one of the videos i can't remember what video it was but someone commented in there how do i get this job and i <laughs> you know i didn't i didn't post it but in my head i thought fight to the death you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, it's it's that kind of it's that kind of job that you you know you're just so stoked that you managed to stay persistent long enough that you got there you know it's been a real goal of mine to get started in Antarctic research and that's for as long as I, I've been in this field kind of thing and it hasn't it hasn't just happened it's taken quite a number of years for me to get there and like Drew says you know the, the real key to getting into this into these fields is yeah standing on the shoulders of giants and and working with other scientists that have you know really started to develop a field and um obviously you have to try and expand on that and and find your own pathway through and from my perspective the the thing that's kind of helped me get where i am is a bit of generality being able to span a few different disciplines and as much as i've specialized in certain areas i've also quite frequently made sure that i'm looking to other research areas that might have a lot of benefit in the in this you know in the specialist area that i work in so um you know as someone that starts started out mainly in the physiology side of things how how individual organisms re relate to the environment i've sort of worked quite a lot on trying to expand that viewpoint to whole ecosystems and that's kind of involved um, really working on different technologies that might help to increase that spatial spatial scale of the data we're collecting. So, yeah, I think also bringing kind of new things to the table. So um, you, Lee's correct. You sort of have to be general. It helps if, if um, you, you're good in the field and you, you dive or you do whatever you get along well with people, um, but also maybe, you can bring something new to the team that's already down there. Um, they don't necessarily want to bring down people that can do exactly what they already do. They want to bring down course, people yeah. that can do new things. And so one of my ins was that I was making these um, benthic uh, process measurements, these metabolic measurements of benthic seafloor oxygen consumption, production and nutrient regeneration and things. One of Lee's real um, benefits that he brought to the table was this ability to um, work with the new technology and expand uh, our capabilities in that way. And so that's been really good. But, you know, Lee's also got really good um, general all around capabilities as an ecologist. And again, most of us are marine um, zoobenthologists. So we study the animals, whereas Lee's also got a broader background with a bit of um, algae, you know, macroalgae research as well. So again, having um, multifaceted skill set and being able to bring new things to the table was really important. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to learn and listen. More information about the episode and guest can be found in the show notes for those interested. And please leave a review if you've enjoyed tuning in. Subscribe to Antarctica Unfrozen wherever you listen to keep up to date on new guests, topics and ideas of the icy environmental kind. This season was made possible thanks to Pride Conservation, a boutique social enterprise from Aotearoa, New Zealand, 
on a mission to contribute to the conservation movement both here at home and globally. For more information and to help be part of the movement, check out www.prideconservation.co.nz. That's it for now. I'm Shanae Monty. And I'm Harry Seeger. And, and until, until next, next time, time stay cool. Stay cool.